I'm Elaine Casket, and this is the fifth installment of a special reboot-themed series of Life on Tech podcasts. As you're discovering, if you're a regular listener, this is a journey through the whole of the lifespan and our relationships with and through technology. And you may be developing some new vocabulary. We've covered cyborg fetuses, baby valence, infant wearables, domestic and commercial sharenting, and social scoring at school. In this episode, we're talking about adolescence. Perhaps the life stage that worries us the most when it comes to technology is teenagers. The question of Instagram's impact on the well-being of teenage girls loomed large in the Facebook files, the Wall Street Journal's investigative report based on documents leaked by Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower who testified before Congress in the U.S. We're always worried about what's happening online and whether it will damage kids at a tender time, developmentally speaking. Concern about teenagers' mental health has driven China to introduce legislation to regulate screen time, allowing 16 to 18 year allowing 16 to 18 year olds two hours per day. So we worry a lot about the impact of screens on teens, but have we got the science to back it up? I spoke about Amy Orban's research in Reboot. She and Professor Andrew Shabilsky did a large piece of research on that very topic with some surprising results. Professor Shabilsky also recently published some research with Mati Vuori about Facebook and well-being. And what all these pieces of research have in common is the Oxford Internet Institute. My guest today is also associated with the OII. If you remember hearing about the OII in this series of podcasts, it's probably because of Professor Victoria Nash, the Institute's director. I spoke with her about infant wearables and baby valence. But today I'm chatting with Karen Mansfield. She's a postdoctoral researcher who's also working on a research program with Professor Andrew Shabilsky about adolescent well-being in the digital age. That project is looking at how the internet, social media, and video games influence the mental health and the psychosocial functioning of young people. Along with a lot of other researchers at the OII, she's trying to build up a stronger research base to better inform health policy and tech regulation, because at the moment, those things are sometimes based more on emotion and assumption and on bad science than on reliable research findings. So here's me and Karen. This episode is going to be a one interview podcast so we can get in deep to adolescence, technology, and well-being. Okay, Karen Mansfield, thank you so much for jumping on to the adolescent a chapter-linked episode of the Reboot podcast with me. I would love for you to introduce yourself uh, with respect to you, well, why I got in touch with you and how I came to speak to you. Tell us about your background and interest in this area. Sure. So um, I work since recently with Professor Andy Shabilsky um, at the Oxford Internet Institute. Um, I'm very interested in the impact of social media and all sorts of other things, actually, that are going on at the moment in adolescents' lives, um, having an enormous impact on their mental health and well-being. Um, my background, I started off initially in experimental psychology, um, and I did, actually did my PhD in cognitive neuropsychology, and then I moved into the mental health, um, adolescent mental health research field, just as my own three children were kind of approaching adolescence. 
Um, I did a lot of survey work with Professor Mina Fazel um, at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Oxford. We developed the Oxwell survey together, um, for which I led on the protocol development. And so I added questions in there together with other colleagues on social media um, and became yeah, increasingly interested. And so recently moved across uh, to work with Professor Shabilsky. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about that particular survey, the Oxwell survey. What was that intended for? So the Oxwell survey, the way I saw it, was intended to be as broad as possible. And so to capture a lot of things that are happening in young people's lives and without being too intrusive. So the aim was for it to be anonymous. We we didn't call it anonymous because we asked so many questions that if somebody who knew that participant were to look at every single answer, then they might be able to work out who they are. So, um, But essentially, you know, we keep the data obviously secure and we don't ask people who they are. But what we did do is we asked a lot of very, very sensitive questions. So we'd ask, for example, about their mental health. We'd ask about all sorts of things going at home, uh, like abuse, for example, um, bullying, um, the use of drugs, um, uh, other, other sorts of questions about relationships, including sexual relationships. Um, and then we'd ask also um, questions on uh, what was going on at school, for example, uh, climate, and then also on social media. And so we had a very wide range of topics that we could essentially explore. It was very, very exploratory survey in young people from um, aging from around nine or 10 years old. So that's the primary school level in the UK, right up to kind of 18, 19. And so those who would be either at um, secondary school or at further education college over here. And would they be answering from a preset uh, number of responses or did they have the opportunity to actually write in and describe their experience? Was it an open-ended qualitative kind of survey or was it something there where they would tick boxes or a combo? There was a real combination. And so there were many questions where they could just tick a box, yes or no. Um, one important thing about the survey is um, that students didn't have to, if we went through schools, that's how we recruited. They didn't have to answer every single question. They could leave as many questions blank as they wanted to. And so that was part of our ethics as well. Um, but depending on their answers to quite some questions, so there was one question, for example, have you ever intentionally harmed yourself? And if they said yes to this question, then that would open up a whole lot of other questions, including the more qualitative questions. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, um, how have you harmed yourself last time you did it, for example? And then we'd have the more um, detailed responses and qualitative. But mostly it was uh, more about ticks boxes. Yeah, got it. And so it was all that was self-report. So it was the adolescents themselves, the kids themselves talking about their experiences in response to the questions. But it was about this really wide range of experiences that adolescents might be having including online, but certainly not restricted to that, all sorts of different things. So what that would have then enabled you to do would be like, oh, interesting people who, uh, yeah, just looking at all the different answers against one another and seeing how things sh sh sort of shook out. Yeah, okay. exactly. That's, I think that's the yeah biggest value of it. Okay, got it. So you decided to come over to the Oxford Internet Institute side of things, and you're working with um, Andy Shabilsky, who's worked with some other colleagues. Amy Orban is really well known for her work with him. Um, I will talk about Amy in the book, actually. Uh, the big study that looked at the effects of screen time um, on adolescent uh, well-being and came up with some results 
that surprised a lot of people in terms of there not being quite as much to see there as people might expect to see. Uh, one of my favorite bits of that study and her analysis of it was the bit where she said, ah, look, the association that we see here between screen time and teen well-being is a roughly along the same trajectory as the association between teen well-being and the amount of potatoes <laughs> that they're eating. But nobody's getting all fired up about potatoes. Um, and so, uh, and I guess that was an interesting challenge because people have such a knee jerk, um, reaction, uh, to the suggestion that maybe there might not be as much evidence yet, um, of these harms as they presume there is. It feels so self-evident to so many people. And I recognize that the evident, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence and that the science needs to be a lot better. But I think a lot of people are surprised when they learn that it's not this hard and fast proof situation that one causes the other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, in terms of causality, it's really, really hard to pin down. I mean, if you think of kind of the work that Amy and Andy have been doing already, um, and then you think about, you know, combine it with the, what my knowledge from the survey, there are so many factors that are going to be impacting young people's mental health. And so even if you see an association, that's obviously not not the case that the one is causing the other. Um, some of the things I saw in the survey, for example, it's it's not I mean, it's not like there's one dependent variable um, or and that is time spent online, for example. And then you just measure that and then you look at, at mental health. It's not the case at all, obviously. Um, but there are certain things which might um, for example, as we've seen from the survey, if they're posting something online, which they later regret, then this is, is more has a kind of a stronger association with their mental health. Um, if they're online when they should be sleeping, this also <laughs> quite a strong association with mental health. Not rocket so, science um, in terms of the, exactly, yeah, less exactly. sleep. It's just, mm. And I think there are so many challenges in terms of design um, that it's very difficult. And also in terms of diversity of samples. So what's harmful online in one culture might be totally different to what's harmful online in another culture. And then in terms of digital poverty and digital literacy as well. So some young people know absolutely nothing about the impact or what's being done with their data, what's being done with all those videos and photos that they post. If they knew that, and they were much more informed, then they might be much more careful in what they post. Um, and just, just be aware of who they're sharing it with, for example, have preferences and, you know, for their privacy. Um, and so these are, these are all of the, yeah, some of the factors, these are not all of the factors, these are some of the factors, um, which I think we should be looking at. All of these factors, and then yet, of course, when it filters through to the news headlines or the clickbait things that concerned parents might click on who are looking at these kids, different generations, so much more time spent on these screens and in the privacy of their own rooms, of course. When I was growing up, there was no question of my having a television in my room. That would have just been way too much uncontrolled screen time of that type. And now, of course, the portability of the technology and the autonomy that kids on this side of the digital divide have and using that technology is something that really sort of triggers parents' um, uh, concerns at a point that I think is already difficult for parents where their kids are becoming more autonomous. They are becoming more their quote unquote own people. And it's not an easy moment um, mm -hmm. for parents. They can, they can easily tip over 
into either a more authoritarian parenting clampdown style because they've been worried about something or they can almost go the other way like learned helplessness and be like i don't know and just go completely hands off such difficult territory to navigate relationally for concerned parents and digital kids yeah no absolutely i mean as a as a parent um i find it extremely difficult it was very easy when they were younger to set rules like uh no phones at the table um, phones, try and use your phones there, um, put the phones away, you know, in time to get ready for bed. Um, don't take the phones up to the bedroom. Um, these kind of things, which are quite easy when your children are young, but mine are now, the eldest is, is 17 um, and the youngest is 14. And so it's quite hard to, you know, kind of turn out that that constant stream of TikTok videos and say, <laughs> you know, that can we please keep that? Oh, I'm just waiting for my toast. Um, for example. So it becomes more like bargaining um, than parenting as they get older. And I think that's that's where it gets difficult because then, of course, they have access to more apps as well. Um, and so, yeah, you're less in control. And, and as a parent, I feel, I feel this is as a parent, I speak more than as a researcher. I feel like the, the best thing you can do is inform them. Just make sure they are well aware um, of what the dangers are and, and ask them every now and again, like, you know, how much time are you going to spend looking at videos today? Um, and how much time you're going to spend doing other things um, and make them think and plan a bit um, and plan for them, obviously, like, you know, in it's summer holidays, take them out, <laughs> do something else. And with for a lot of kids, you know, they, they don't have that. Um, a lot of families don't have that possibility. Taking your kids out and entertaining them is quite expensive. And so that that can also be a factor, I think. I'm aware that, and there are a lot of platforms that enable parents to do this surreptitiously or otherwise, that of course, with the increase in kids using these kinds of devices, there's also been an increase in a kind of intimate or parental surveillance uh, on these devices. In the United States, we have platforms like Bark, services like Bark. Here in the UK, we have Custodio. And, you know, and although optimally, these are all supposed to be applied or deployed in conversation with your kids, it's very open in practice. A large percentage of parents do at least some of their surveillance or checking up or snooping on what kids are doing on the down low surreptitiously because they're afraid of, you know, blowback (laughs) from their children, understandably, who are questing after their autonomy and their privacy. And so I guess one of the things I'm really interested in in the exploring in the chapter, as well as in the whole of the book, is the interpersonal relational dynamic kind of effects of surveilling and then being subjected to that surveillance, uh, you know, for teenagers and and parents in this chapter. I was wondering if you have any thoughts on the difficulty of that territory. Yeah, that's really difficult. Um, I mean, we've had a, a not a definitely not a hands-off approach with our children. Um, we've definitely um, tried to discuss everything with them. And we've tried the, the you know, the, the knowing what they're downloading and discussing that and, and be, having to give for, um, approval for anything, any apps that they're downloading, for example. And to some extent, yes, it does work. But as they get older, they do feel that that is a, a, a breach of their um, their privacy and they want to feel like you're, they're trusted as well. So it's really, really tricky. I think it's a great idea to try and, um, research that. Um, I think it's really, really hard, though, to find and advise on good ways to deal with that um, for parents. I think that's a really tricky one. Um, it's a it's a fine line between, you know, wanting to trust them. We, we've gone more for the approach of 
wanting to discuss everything openly with our kids than for the surreptitiously, surreptitiously um, spying on them and, and trying to find out. But but yeah, there have been yeah um, very um, uh, negative conversations about you know who are you in conversation with and and, and what's so important now that you can't put that down. Mm-hmm. Um, and have you seen these sorts of things online, um, you know, checking that they're not looking at porn, for example, and and making them aware of the dangers of that. Mm. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, I w- I'm aware of a study, and this is about the next age group or the next developmental phase up in terms of young adulthood. One of the things I look at in the young adulthood chapter is a piece of research that came out the other year that looked at the perceived acceptability of cyberstalking or being cyberstalked amongst different age groups. And the younger people were, the more likely they were to say, ah, well, cyberstalking, what can you do? You know, it's a normal part of life. It's acceptable to do. I'd rather be cyberstalked than physically stalked, etc. Of course, the older respondents to that survey were saying, no, what are you talking about? That's just not okay. That's not acceptable. And it really made me think about the younger generations accepting that as part of something that occurs in relationships and how that might be preceded or they might be primed for that from the experience of having been surveilled quite heavily by loved ones, well-meaning loved ones, parents from the time that they were children and having their GPS locations tracked as they went off to secondary school, then having perhaps their devices monitored and checked, perhaps surreptitiously in the name of safety, and how there's this acclimatization to being the object or the subject of surveillance and how that might then extend forward into other types of relationships as people get older. Yeah, that's quite frightening. I mean, I, it's, I guess it's hard to tell the extent to which before everybody had an iPhone, people were stalked, whether it was cyber stalked or physically stalked. But it is it is quite worrying. My my children will, you know, very openly say, oh, no, I'm just going to I'm just going to stalk you, cyber stalk you and make sure I, I share my location with my kids as well. So if they share their location with me, then I share my location back. Um, and so they can cyberstalk me <laughs> as much as I cyberstalk them. Maybe that helps, but um, it is quite frightening um, in a way that yeah, they can say, oh, "No, I can look up this, this, and this, and this, and this about this person." Um, but knowing in mind, of course, that what people show online, um, yes, you can track that location sometimes. But in terms of you know the information and the photos and the videos that they put online, they've all been very carefully selected. Um, to be the image that they want to show and so it's I think yeah young people need to be aware of that as well and so this person who seems to get perfect grades um, you know there are another 10,000 people who are not getting perfect grades Mm -hmm. and this person who's got perfect skin there's another (laughs) you know (laughs) and so in terms of yeah it, it, it does it is it is worrying it's I think it's more about changing their perceptions of of the reality. I think that's what worries me more. Yeah. Um, And I think what I'm interested in, I guess, from the assessing and understanding the scientific evidence, almost from the parental or the adult perspective, it's almost the other way around. Yet for every scary thing that we read, we have to recognize that there's also a huge percentage of kids who may be benefiting in multifarious ways from the social platforms that they use or from their technology or their devices. So we have this reaction. I know that I could be extremely reactive to a 
scary news story when the Facebook whistleblower, you know, Francis Haugen was testifying before Congress. And I was watching that quite breathlessly. And then I actually went and looked at the research that some of that had been based on. And I thought, but wait, on this self-report study about a very low N number of girls who were already experiencing difficult times and responded to the survey, it's what they thought that was might have been having an influence on their you know, depression. So their explanation or their causal inferences about what was responsible for their feeling bad was taken yeah. as gospel and then rolled out before Congress and, and really reacted to by press around the world. And again, you know, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence. And it's certainly the case that these big social media companies could, if they chose, partner with academic institutions more openly, like the OII, to provide a whole bunch of aggregate, you know, rich data that we could better use to understand what's really going on. But there's not necessarily that kind of open uh, working relationship. Absolutely. I mean, this is this is exactly, I think, what I mean, I think the, the the U.S. Surgeon General, for example, has said this as well. Social media companies or uh, technology companies should be sharing their data. They have such a rich um, data source. And if they're measuring mental health in any way, um, ideally not just by asking people, what do you think is influencing your mental health? Because it's very, very subjective. There'll be, you know, the, the um, uh, biases related to who takes part in the survey as well. Um, so it's very, very difficult to trust these, these kind of responses. But in terms of the other measures that they might have of mental health, even the ones that have been, um, for example, using AI, um, you know, detecting the kind of messages that people are putting out there, you can probably also detect um, whether somebody has poor mental health. And if you can relate this somehow to um, their, their, how they're using their, their social media, for example, to um, the kind of networks that they have on social media, um, what's in their feed, um, you know, all sorts of all sorts of factors. The social media companies, they have access to this incredibly rich data source. And so, yes, um, hopefully that will be shared mm. and, um, and independent scientists like those at the OII will get much better insight into what's going on because I think that's that's the true value. There's so little, there's a bit, but there's so little that's longitudinal. There's so little that looks at the same cohort of individuals or kind of or some, you know, comparable cohort of individuals at point A and point B and looks at outcomes in terms of psychological maturity or psychological flexibility or well-being or any other kind of measure. There, there are a few. And some of the ones that I talk about in the book, again, it shows how much context matters, how much it depends, because kids who used social media at 13 and 14 to a similar amount had different outcomes, but it depended on how they were using those social media, whether they were using it for genuine connection, whether they were using it for um, facilitating the relationships, or whether they were passively scrolling or lurking or doing social comparison and everything like that. Depending on how people use those social media, that was what was responsible for the outcomes, not the social media itself. Exactly, exactly. Um, and and what, one thing I was going to talk about is, of course, yeah, the social media industry, they possibly do have access to that kind of longitudinal data because, of course, they've got the profiles. Um, so they, it would be really great if we can use that data for insights. 
Um, there are also some studies that have asked about social media use and our longitudinal studies. But the problem with those is there often there's a lot of attrition. So the, the group size will be the sample size will be much smaller. And so you've got this kind of trade off. You've got this um, data that was designed for research, including on, on adolescent well-being, including social media, which is great, perfect design. Um, to follow up and, and uh, you know, observational design and even some experimental studies as well. But those tend to have very limited samples. They won't be diverse. They won't be fully inclusive. There won't be enough homoge homogeneity in those data sets. And then on the other hand, you've got the social media companies who have the possibility to do exactly that. All of it, like big, <laughs> yeah. like the, the you know, it, it just subjecting all of the data to the kind of machine learning analysis that we can do now to actually see. It, that's, that's so interesting. I read a paper, I can't remember where, I, I will have to try to find it, but it was talking about, or maybe it was, maybe it was, um, uh, oh gosh, sorry, uh, Victor Meyer Schoenberger's book on big data, um, where he was talking about all this random, all the all the experimental design principles that we are familiar with historically to try to arrange a situation where we can generalize from a limited sample. Now, in a big data sort of setting, it's actually possible to use all of the data of everyone who uses a particular platform um and and to and, and so for all these things around random selection and homogeneity and this and that um it's really changed a lot about the potential for research uh, yeah. design but it still remains hard to really hone in on causal uh causal conclusions in terms of eliminating all these other possible variables, the impacts of all these other elements of context, and to say, as as headlines in popular press imply can be said, this causes this. There's a lot of lazy language, of course, there in the popular press. Yeah, it's really frustrating. But how do you overcome those kind of misunderstandings in the public? I think that's the tricky thing. Um, whenever you're interviewed for the media, then there's this fine line between wanting to explain something and explain what the, you know, the technical or the statistical issues are with why this association doesn't mean that one is causing the other. And then at the same time, coming across with a clear message. And so that's really hard. Um, you want to explain to the public, but it, sometimes it is quite difficult. So um, finding finding the right words. <laughs> yes, nuance gets left on the cutting room floor or nuance gets drummed out by the way questions are asked or answered. And sometimes it's probably been the case with you as well. Journalists will brief you that say they're going to want a sort of clear stance on this. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So that they're really pulling for: Do we have something to worry about or not? Is this dangerous or yes, not? Right. Toxic or not? So it all gets reduced to these things. And for parents uh, and kind of concerned citizens who are really wanting answers, because out of love and out of care, they want to know the right thing to do. They're concerned with safety. There is an element of, of moral panic about a lot of the technologies that kids have access to today. I was in a meeting of Rebel Book Club, which is a nonfiction London-based book club that has branches elsewhere as well. And for their 100th book, they were reading a book about video gaming uh, by Professor Pete Etchells called Lost in a Good Game. And one of the chapters was about screen time and about this judgment that we have around screens in general. So if somebody were to say, 
I spent all weekend playing at home alone, playing a video game, people would think, oh dear, this is bad. How sad. If somebody were to say, I spent all weekend alone reading a novel, people would say, oh, good for you. Oh my gosh, you're so good. You know, <laughs> I wish I could be as good as you, you know, does, you know, congratulations on your me time and your ability to read your novel. And, and, <laughs> It's so mediated by our perceptions and fears around screens, which go back as long as there have been screens. And my parents told me I was going to get square eyes, you know. Yeah, absolutely. No, I've had exactly the same thing. No, I've, I, I've stopped worrying. If, if the kids are playing Minecraft um, or any game that's not basically killing people, then uh, and generally I've stopped worrying. Um, and, you know, there's there's plenty of games out there which, which are going to be very social as well. I think that's what a lot of people forget, especially during the pandemic. Then when my kids were online, they were interacting with their friends um, if they were gaming. Uh, and even if they were sending, you know, messages on, on Snapchat or Instagram, then they they were probably, um, they, they were c- communicating with their friends. And so at the time, you know, that that felt more of a good thing. I can imagine if a, if a child is sitting alone and if they don't have, you know, that those kind of friendships and those kind of interactions through whichever platform they're leading, it might be very different. Absolutely. Yeah, you're reminding me, I think of the uh, article that Amy Orban put out in, I think, The Guardian during the pandemic, which was basically stop panicking about your kids' screen time. They are surviving the pandemic. They are adapting yes. in the way that they need yeah, to adapt, did. as we did. Absolutely, as yeah. we did. And, you know, in my psychotherapy practice is still almost exclusively online, you know, and going very well and uh, in a way all the better for it And in, in, in terms of my ability to arrive at work unstressed and my client's ability to show up in a convenient way and it's been fantastic. So we have this reflexive judgment about technologically mediated interaction being less than, but it isn't necessarily the case. What do you think are the really important things that we need to be understanding more about with respect to technology and adolescent well-being and mental health, which may or may not relate to specific things that you're doing at the Oxford Internet Institute, just your general hot take on what we really do need to be getting that research uh, done on? I, I think some of the general hot takes are, are kind of making sure that what we're measuring is is not being caused by other factors. There's so many things going on. So, you know, the climate change, for example, a lot of young people are understandably very worried about the climate, um, a, a financial crisis, economic crisis. A lot of young people are facing poverty at the moment. And then at the same time, you know, we're telling them, oh, no, you can't be using your phones when all of their friends are on their phones all the time. And so they're going to start feeling guilty about being on their phones when, in fact, that might be one of the things that makes them feel part of the group. Um, And so, yes, I think it's um, understanding that there are other factors and not automatically blaming social media. At the same time, I think there are definitely bad things on social media that we need to be investigating. And so we need to be looking at, at the kind of networks, at what's on the feed. We need to be looking at, at, at you know, digital literacy, for example, and um, the extent to which um, children can um, understand about these controls and, and the control features that are possible. Um, blocking and reporting should be a lot easier than it is. That, that's very difficult. <laughs> um, you know, children should just be, should just um, be well-informed and 
and and have the control. And I think we need to look into how we can make that possible. It, social media is here to stay. It's not going away. And so what we need to be looking into is how to make sure that children um, are using it as appropriately as they can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, in terms of the the things that we have to worry about on, on social media, um, it's also the case, of course, that we're worried about it, not just for adolescents and for kids, but for adults too. And I'm aware that another piece of Andy's um, co-authored research came back with, um, uh, is it Matty Woti uh, about the yeah. Facebook with respect to Facebook use and uh, well-being, which I think was not focused on adolescents and kids, but was focused on adults. And again, people's instinctive reactions is like that can't possibly be true. Um, but they're still looking for this reductionist monolithic impact answer of is this going to be good or bad for me? Is this going to impact me in a positive and negative way? And what that feels like it really misses out is the individual agency or the or the fact that it's really you that is most able to assess is this working for me or not? Is this having a good or bad impact on my health, my use of this platform, and what do I need to do about that? It's almost as though in a learned helplessness kind of way, we've outsourced the responsibility (laughs) uh, for our mental health to something else uh, rather than owning that for ourselves. Yeah, Yeah, I I think this is, I mean, yeah, we we do have to own that. But um, it's also a case of, of, you know, industry and everybody feeling responsible. So the, the, the social media industry should be sharing their data with independent scientists. Um, the study that Andy and Matty did um, is kind of a, a first step, I feel, because those data were obviously not identifiable data, but they were grouped at the country level. Mm-hmm. And so you could see that as countries were adopting Facebook, it was more likely to be having a positive impact. And especially on young people, you saw that um, it was more likely associated with good well-being. Mm-hmm. But again, like like you know, I was saying earlier, um, you, you have to factor in poverty. And so the, the, the you know, the kind of financial um, factors were not um, measurable those those kind of uh, measures were not available in in the data analysis so it might be that as countries became more wealthy or as more people in those countries became more wealthy and were already having good well-being that they were more likely to adopt facebook and so it's it, and i think that's kind of what they argue actually in the in the conclusion of the paper yeah and so um in order to really kind of solve that puzzle then the the industry and policymakers and parents um, and adolescents and everybody should all be working together. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And policymakers and regulators are often reacting to the same kinds of things that a concerned parent might be, or they might make what feel to me like more emotionally driven than research driven <laughs> kinds of decisions about restrictions or regulation around social media. Um, for example, uh, you know, countries that are either doing this or contemplating putting limits or uh, watersheds or uh, um, uh, curfews, digital curfews on young people's uh, use of devices in the hopes that that's going to solve some kind of problem, which I feel, which I feel skeptical about that point you made about digital poverty and uh, countries that are developing countries. Of course, we can't forget that in some of those countries, um, platforms like Facebook are extraordinarily powerful. It is almost like they are the internet, you know, a huge amount of 
societal infrastructure in a way is hosted uh, by Facebook. So living everyday life and that's being possible and, and, and kind of communicating, um, it's almost like a telecommunications company in some developing countries. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I think we've seen that um, Facebook is, is, probably still quite widely used, I'd say, in, in the developing countries, whereas now in, in the US and other Western countries, adolescents have moved on yeah. to like different platforms mm-hmm. to social media. Um, I, I don't know. It's there, Things are very different um, in the global south, for example, to how they are in the global north. Yeah. And so I expect there are many, many other factors there. Mm. Um, which most of us don't understand just because there's not enough research done um, in those areas at present. So I think, yeah, that that is all yet to be uncovered, um, exactly how Facebook is being used and where it's harmful. I'm sure I'm sure there are definitely some harms there. And they um, if we can understand those and stop them, that would be amazing. How optimistic are you about with respect to adolescent well-being and mental health and social media use? How optimistic are you that we'll be seeing a day sooner rather than later when there is this a more open collaboration of sharing and, and sharing of information between these companies and independent research bodies like the Oxford Internet Institute and other places that study this? I think this is going to take policy. Um, so in terms of how optimistic, it really, really depends. If, if the government is um, putting pressure on the digital tech companies to share their data with independent scientists so that research can be done without all those conflicts of interest, then I think that that's the way forward. But in order for um, those policies to happen, then of course you also need to make sure that the the, the policymakers themselves are not conflicted. And so it's, it's, there's that dilemma. And so, and that depends on in which country you live. Um, (laughs) I think you're probably referring here to the fact that, and it is a fact, it's not a secret secret thing, that in the United States, these technology companies, they have a very powerful lobby, um, uh, you know, with respect to the U.S. government. And so it can be hard for regulators and, you know, people in, in government to be dispassionate uh, about these things because there's this special relationship. Yeah, yeah. And it's not limited to the US, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure it's everywhere. And so, yes, um, so that's, if there's anything that's kind of um, limiting my optimism, then it's that, I suppose. Mm. Um, and maybe, I don't know, maybe by sharing enough research um, on and demonstrating the benefits of of technology companies sharing the data, and making sure that any research that does use the data is very constructive. And so, in other words, you know, we've, we've got to focus on we're not trying to kill social media. We're trying to, you know, um, inform um, social media companies of which technology policies are going to be helpful, both for them in terms of engaging their users and for them in terms of protecting um, the mental well-being of their users and preventing harm. Because obviously, if they see it as a win, as something that could help them build a better, more appealing, safer, healthier, better product, uh, then that's something that, in theory at least, they might want to engage with. But apparently, they're not at that point yet, or perhaps they feel confident that that's going to be the outcome, or they're worried about sanction or restriction or limitation. But I think that some of that happens when there, you know, there was a lot of the headlines said around the time of the Facebook files and the whistleblowing stuff. 
if it, what, what, what's so, you know, what are they hiding? You know, like if they're not going to pony up more data than that, which has been released, like what's going on there, you know, why can't uh, independent academic institutions understand more about what really goes on under the hood? Um, any final thoughts that you'd like to offer on your perspective on adolescence and teen uh, kind of use of techno- uh, modern technology? Any final thoughts? I feel like we've kind of covered everything quite well, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, I think as a researcher, I think if if this message is going, this podcast is going to go out to researchers as well as uh, as other oh. wider audiences. Yeah. I guess um, then the message would be: make sure that if you're doing research on the impact of, sen- of social media on on well being, whether it's in adults or in adolescents, then make sure that the messages are constructive. Um, a lot of you know research out there tends to say, oh, social media is bad, and then yeah, you get things like curfews and time limits, and um, which you know I, I don't know whether those would be beneficial to any group of people. Maybe, maybe not. But um, but I think yeah, um, try to be as constructive as possible, and um, and consider all of the other factors that are that are going on. Yeah, I think it's a really good note to end on because we all know about that famous aphorism about if it bleeds, it leads about the media industry. And of course, most headlines are negatively valenced. You don't see a lot of headlines saying the majority of teens derive positive benefit from social media, which is would be a true headline, you know. It, um, and so it uh, or they don't focus on you know, to these are the constructive ways of engaging with social media for your teen. You, these are not the ways that the headlines tend to skew. But we already have, we're operating already with enough understanding and information that would make those kinds of headlines possible as well. But there's a there's an imbalance. Um, and so absolutely, I think that's a really good point for researchers, because if they're phrasing it and framing it constructively, then it makes it a little bit harder for the next step along, which is the the media to then exactly. take it in a negative yeah. direction. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me today. I really, really appreciate it. And it was a fun discussion for me. I hope it was for you too. It was. It was really interesting. Thank you. Nice question. <laughs> okay. So this is it. We've pretty much reached the midpoint. Next episode, we're going to be going into adulthood, younger adulthood, middle adulthood, older adulthood, and then the extra special added on at the end phase of the modern lifespan, digital afterlife. All of that is to come, but for today, I just want to thank Karen Mansfield of the Oxford Internet Institute for sitting down with me and having such a generative, thought-provoking discussion. Reboot is now out in the United Kingdom and some other territories. Besides, please do check retailers and e-tailers where you live to see when and how you can get it. But it is out in hardback form in the UK, so you can get it from Amazon, from Bookshop, from Hive, from your local independent, from your local library, wherever you get your books. Head on over as well to elainecaskett.com slash publications for some handy links. It should also be in the show notes. Thanks for coming with me on the journey so far. We will be back next week with the adulthood episode. I'll be looking at adult romantic attachment and how it interfaces well or badly with our technology use. Take care till then.